Now, we will be continuing, as you have heard, in our First Corinthians series, and we are in chapter 10. And typically when I speak, I come up here and I introduce the text with some weird, crazy, uh, personal story usually to introduce the topic that is addressed in the text. Now, some of you are probably wondering, maybe even anticipating, what story could Heath tell about demons and communion with them? To be clear, I do have a story, but I'm not going to tell it to you this morning because it will not give clarity to our text. It will lack muddy the waters. I want to be very, very, very clear this morning. So with that, the shortest introduction Heath will ever do, with that, here is our outline. It's threefold this morning. What is the context that Paul is speaking into? Then, what does Paul say specifically to this context? And lastly, why do we care? What are the implications for our context? So, we have spoken almost ad nauseum about the culture, the chaos, all the things, uh, their love of uh, patronage in Corinth, wealth, honor, prestige, power, all of those sort of things. But we have kind of just cursory sort of introduced the idea, but we really haven't actually honed in and discussed one very integral thing that you need to understand about Corinth. We need to look at the smorgasbord of worship that existed in Corinth. Now, because being a missionary in Athens, Greece, I've had the privilege, or the curse, you could say, of visiting Corinth, oh, easily more than 15 times. You know, when anybody comes to visit, they're like, what do you want to see? First of all, food. Second of all, if they're a Christian, they're like, I got to see, I got to see Corinth. So, you'd, uh, you'd pack up the family, you'd drag them all out to Corinth, and, and every time I go to Corinth, every single time... I have one feeling after I visit the site, and it's not how, what you think it's gonna be. I think the, the archeologists set the site up backwards. Every time I go there, I'm like, we've seen this place backwards. So what you do is you, know, you get into your car, you drive the 100 kilometers, you land in Corinth, you pay your five euro entrance fee, you enter from the, from the kind of the west side, and you go through all, all the things, you see the trees, you hear the cicadas, and then you exit by the Lecheon Road down towards you know, the view towards the port. That's backwards. That's backwards. Because if you see it that way, you miss something very, very significant. And what's that? Context. You miss context provided for you in our text about the geography itself. See, Paul, on the other hand, he would have arrived in the port, and he would have walked the two kilometers into Corinth. And what would he have seen? Before you get before you get into the city itself, you are confronted with a 600-meter pinnacle of rock. It's like, have you ever, have we been to Squamish? Who, yeah, we've been to Squamish. We've seen the chief, right? So imagine the chief, it's like driving or walking into Squamish, looking up, and all you can see is the chief. That's what Corinth is. And perched at the very top of this pinnacle of rock is the temple to Aphrodite the patron goddess of the city. She is associated with love, lust, beauty, pleasure, passion, procreation, all the stuff that Paul, that we looked at in chapter six. This is what Paul sees as he begins that two-kilometer walk. The omnipresent monolith itself that dwarfs you, that makes you realize that you are small, that you are insignificant, that there is something greater than you, and that's before you even set foot into the city. So as you, as you approach the propylia, the, the entrance of the city, on your right, you will see 
a massive Doric temple dedicated to Apollo. And behind that temple, there is a, a, a theater. It's huge. And there's an Odeon. These are all places of drama and music. Now, Apollo, if you're not familiar, he's the Greek and Roman god of archery, of music, of dance, of truth, prophecy, healing diseases, sun, etc., poetry, all of those sort of things. This is who Apollo is. Then you casually look to your left and you see a massive fountain. And this, and the waters that come from this fountain, not only do they feed the latrines in the city itself, but you can actually go there and, and, and under worship of the god Asclepion, you can actually, actually receive healing for your ailments. You can bathe in its waters and Asclepion with the right sacrifice of clay legs or clay arms or whatever sacrifices you give, he would provide healing for you. Also to the left, there is another structure and it serves as a huge fellowship hall. You know, like if you grew up in the church, there's like these fellowship halls attached to the, you know, to the church. Well, attached there is there's another fellowship hall. This is where you could go, you could take, you know, I live in the downtown east side, so right next door I have like this mushroom dispensary. So it's like that. You can go to the mushroom dispensary, get what you want, lay down, you know, drink lots of wine, get yourself wasted, and you can have psychological experiences and you can have those psychological experiences interpreted for you. And you could worship Dionysius and whatever God you want in this place in the fellowship hall. You can eat, drink, and be merry. And that's before you even hit the entrance. So you walk up the propylia, you get into the entrance, and right in front of you is this place called the Vima. Now we know, you know, if you read your Bible, you would have called it the Bima. But the Vima in Greek, it is the place. It's the center of this square. There's a massive courtyard, and in the center is the seat of authority. It's the seat of authority where the, where the city held all its council, its courts. It's in fact, if you look in Acts chapter 18, you can see Paul is drugged there because he's really irritated a bunch of Jewish people in the city, and they want him punished. This is where they drew, drug Paul. So if you walk to this Vima, and you do a 360-degree turn, Surrounding this seat of judgment, encircling this courtyard is shop after shop after shop after shop. It's a veritable cornucopia of merchant shops, temples, and places of worship. Worships, worshiped in this area, all within a three to 500 meter range of this Vima, is Athena, Asclepion, Hera, Heracles, Hermes, Poseidon, Dionysius. You know, when Paul says in chapter 8, which says, there are indeed there are as many gods and many lords, what do you think he's referring to? I'm not just making this stuff up. Archaeologists have found over 26 evidence of different places of worship in Corinth. And the place is really not that big. 26 places of worship. Imagine you're at the art gallery downtown. It's 26 places of worship circling the art gallery. Think of that. There is not a, not a, like if you look out, there is not a place that, that you can't see where something is not worshipped. See, from the center of the Segora, it's like, you know, I guess the only way I could describe it would be like, think of this, it would be like living in Las Vegas, in a food court, in a, in a casino, in the red light district. That's pretty much what you've got going on here. So the first thing that you realize is, firstly, you have compassion on the Corinthian church. The second thing that you notice 
is you have sympathy for Paul and as he weeds through the minefield of active and passive idolatry. We underestimate, we underestimate the cultural lure and the power of temptation of this new reality that the Christians here in Corinth faced. We miss the ever-present, suffocating pull to engage with their old life, the idolatry of everyday common life just to get your groceries. We undervalue the burden and the struggle that this church lived with as it tried to maintain fidelity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you live as a Christian in that context? So we speed read 1 Corinthians and we somehow think that this church is weak, that this church is pathetic, and we think that we are superior to and not immune to the same things that these Christians struggled with. We've got it figured out, right? We've got science. We don't have to worry about these God things. Right? Because Paul says that they're not real. Understanding Corinthian context here helps melt away our smug hubris like an ice cream cone in the summer Greek heat. Understanding this context of worship, Corinth and in Corinthians in this letter in chapter 10 that we read, suddenly it makes sense. It takes a different tone as we grapple with what Paul grapples with here. The only, the only way is, like I said, a food court. So I tell you all of this, not as some sort of weird travel, extended travel journal or some mental slideshow of an of a, you know, old missionary. I tell you this because it has significance. Context is everything here. Now, to be clear, if you visit Greece and you don't talk to me first, you're lost. But I'm telling, this is what I'm telling you. Point number two. What does Paul actually say then to this context? Now, a few months ago, probably in January, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And Paul says in verses 18 through 20, he says this. He says, flee from sexual immorality. And you're like, oh, great, he's going back here. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price to glorify God in your body. So to sum up what Paul says here in chapter 6, he says this, there is no such thing as free, casual sex. In fact, he says flee from it. Why? Because sexual immorality and sexual intimacy is a powerful form of worship. Engaging in sexual activity outside the context of marriage, it bifurcates your worship of God himself. Why does Paul say this? Because he sees, he sees that these Christians were struggling with what to do with the temple prostitutes of Aphrodite. You know, you want a little extra on the side? You go there. Paul says, no, what you're doing is actually active worship to Aphrodite. It's directly linked to that. So he explains to them, he says, look, you were bought with a price. The death and resurrection of Jesus as God. So that this act connects you to life of God, connects you to God himself. This new restored relationship, it becomes the place where this God's spirit himself dwells. Think about that. Paul says, he looks around at all of these temples and says, you know what, guys? You're more powerful because your body is the temple, not these things carved out of stone. Your bodies are temples. Your bodies, why does it matter? Because there's a spiritual reality at work here. Casual sex is idolatry. 
Whether you realize it or not, it's worship of something else. More likely than not, it's Aphrodite. Now, Paul isn't the one that actually states this only here. It says we know from history, we know from archaeology, from other places where Aphrodite was worshipped, sex was a vehicle of expression of Aphrodite. There is no such thing as casual free sex. Why? For reasons of worship. When Paul says flee from sexual immorality, that's one book here end of, of Paul's argument in chapter 6. The other book end is in chapter 10 where Paul confronts us and says, hey, there is no such thing as casual worship. Full stop. Let me read the text again. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. He's probably being ironic there. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. We who all partake in one bread, consider the people of Israel. Are those who eat the sacrifices participants rather in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Can I say demons 700 more times in a sentence? You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul pleads with this church to flee from idolatry. His reasoning and his argument is to point them to a tangible reality, and that is the central act of worship of the Christian church. Participation in communion meal. The body, the blood, the bread, the wine. Communion, amongst other things, and we will look at this further in chapter 11, but communion brings us together as individuals from all spectrums of society. We become one body together. doesn't matter where you come from or what status of society, we are brought together in one. And in the communion meal, when we take the cup and when we take the bread, we participate in the death and burial of Jesus Christ. The price paid to purchase our freedom. But we also participate in the resurrection of Christ, where we gain and receive freedom and new life. Simply put, Paul says that in the communion meal, we celebrate, we commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And this profound act of worship is an act of worship which we give our allegiance so that we can share the life and the benefits of Jesus Christ. That is what we celebrate. That is why we worship. Communion is the central act of worship where we give allegiance to and share in the life and the benefits of God himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just like the Israelites who receive benefits and blessings by eating offerings and, and such, we too receive blessings by participating in the communion meal. And it's due to Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his new life. Paul, Paul's overt assertion is this, and I'll say it again. There is no such thing as casual worship. Now, when you engage with the prevailing culture, willingly or consciously, when you feast, when you drink, when you have sex at various temples, you by default are actively participating in something far more sinister, 
far more malevolent and far more destructive than you can possibly ever imagine. And Paul calls them demons. Paul says, flee from these things. There's no such thing as casual worship. Now, right about now, you're probably paying attention. I'm assuming that. And you've been thinking, hmm, I've read chapter 8. Doesn't Paul say, doesn't Paul say that idols are nothing? That they're useless? That they don't really have any existence whatsoever? So why should I care? Well, yeah, he does say that, actually. Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 7. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. That's a, that's a slogan that they were saying. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Through him we are all things, and through him we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. For some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Paul says that because we know that there is one and true only God and one Jesus Christ who is Lord, we know that through him all things exist. Therefore, he is superior to everything. And therefore, the idols and images, they don't have any real value, whether they're stone, whether they're wood, etc., a picture. But what he doesn't say is that they don't lack significance, meaning, or power. What Paul refers to in chapter 8 here as many gods and Lord, in chapter 10, he directly calls them demons, evil, malevolent spiritual entities. That's hard for our 21st century years to hear, isn't it? Paul would not be so concerned about participation in idol feasts if he did not believe that in some way, in some way, giving at least tacitly some allegiance of self over to a demon. He, he would not say this here if he did not believe that was a reality. 21 and 22 in our text. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? These two are mutually exclusive fellowships. You can't be an Edmonton Oilers fan and a Calgary Flames fan at the same time. And certainly, you cannot be a Vancouver Canucks fan now. Okay, you can laugh. That's a joke. Lighten the brevity a bit. But it's true. I grew up near Edmonton. I think I would probably be drawn and courted if I was, became a Flames fan. Any other... We have this policy, ABC, anybody but Calgary. But anyway, before I digress, Paul says here that if we continue down this path, we are at risk of angering God. And we are in danger of the same level of judgment that the Israelites received after they, after they exited Egypt. This is what Daniel dealt with last week in his text. There is no such thing as casual worship. If we know or unknowingly choose to worship at an idol or at a temple, we actually are participating in the life and the benefits of a demon, not God himself. There is no such thing as casual worship. Paul says, flee from this. Do not provoke the holiness of God. As you walk around the Agora, Corinthians, as you go and tend the Odeon and listen to a performance dedicated to Apollo, 
As you go and you bathe in the waters to soothe your feet, that's maybe dedicated to Asclepion, you know, don't, you know, when you go to the party that's dedicated to Dionysius just because you really want a good glass of wine and a steak, don't do this because there's something malevolent behind it. There's no such thing as casual worship. It's either directed towards God or something else. And Paul says, flee from it. Now, right about now, you're thinking, okay, are you telling me that there are demons behind every bush? You know, I grew up in this, you know, kind of a paradigm that that was a reality, and you lived in fear of that. Okay, you're thinking, oh, great, now I have more things to worry about. As if my life wasn't stressful enough that I have to deal with the anxious nature of like, oh, my gosh, there's a demon there. You see, you could easily say, okay, Heath, I look to the North Shore Mountains and I don't see a temple dedicated to Mother Earth. When I walked down Robson Street into the financial district, I didn't see any edifice to Plutus, the god of cash flow. Asclepion doesn't receive power when I don my Lululemons and head to the gym. To be clear, I don't do that. Hermes clearly was not invoked when I watched the Canucks not make the playoffs. There is no image of Apollo on my TV set, no matter how big it is, the last time I binged watched Squid Game. And I certainly didn't give and see anything related to Aphrodite or Dionysius as I partied on the Granville Strip. Heath, we are not in Corinth. Come on, man. But the question still remains. As we hit point three, what significance, what bearing does Paul's words here have for us? What, what words do a, a church swimming in idolatry have to us today in our scientific and our 21st century reality? We don't believe in all that stuff, do we? That's what movies are for. These things are neutral, right? Hmm. Postmodern author David Foster Wallace in his famous This Is Water speech in 2005, he says this. And this guy's not a Christian at all. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel like enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Sadly, this man in deep depression succumb to self-harm. Christ City, there's no such thing as neutral, casual worship. As Paul stands at the Vima and observes the object of worship of the Corinthian church here, Paul says, you cannot partake in the life of Jesus and the life of demons at the same time. This same Paul says to us, just like what Foster Wallace says here, and he makes plain for us, is that there is no such thing as casual worship for us either. In his brilliant work of fiction, uh, Screw Tape Letters, author C.S. Lewis gives us some valuable insight here to help navigate this, maybe to give us some categories to even 
postulate or think about this. Now, clearly, this is a work of fiction, but it's an interesting one. What you have here, if you're not familiar with it, it's, a, it's an internal communication in hell. So what you've got uh, in this brilliant, absolutely brilliant work, I think it's C.S. Lewis's greatest work, what you've got is this bureaucratic demon. His name is uh, Screwtape, and he writes letters to his nephew, who's a demon, called Wormwood. He is a junior tempter, and the uncle's mentorship pertains to the um, responsibility in securing the corruption and damnation of, a, of an unnamed person called the patient. That's us, guys. So we have this dialogue between two demons, and I will pick up the story in chapter 7. My dear Wormwood, it's in, the, it's in the form of letters. It's fascinating. Go home and read it afterwards. Don't Google it now. I wonder, you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they, when, <clears throat> on the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. At least not yet. I have had great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is in effect belief in us, though not under the same name, it will creep into while the human mind remains closed to the belief of an enemy. The life force, the worship of sex, and some aspect of psychoanalysis may here prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshiping what he vaguely calls forces, while denying the existence of spirits, ah, uh, then the end of the war will be in sight. But in the meantime, we must obey our orders. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. In fact, the devils are predominantly comic figures you know, in the modern imagination. It will help you. In fact, if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that he cannot believe in that. That is an old textbook method of confusing them. He therefore cannot believe in you. Now, I'm not sure, you know, about you, but like, we don't linger on these thoughts very often, do we? It's true. When we think of demons, when we think of the devil, we think of guys in, in spandex that's red, like red Lululemons with a pitchfork and horns, you know, resembling something like of a really bad tattoo that you got at the, you know, the circus when you were like 18. We think of demons as something from B-rated movie, scary teeth, gray, dark, or red glowing eyes, or we think of like weird personal thing called the exorcist. If David Foster Wallace is true, when he states that there's no such thing as not worshiping. And I think he's right in that. We need to heed what Paul says in our text and what Screwtape Letters illustrates for us, that there is no such thing as no neutrality, but rather something malevolent. There's something evil behind what we tacitly engage and by default we worship. As C.S. Lewis illustrates, by default we believe and we live as though our Western false worship lacks significance. We live as though the things that we are enslaved to are neutral, lacking in power, lacking in influence over our day-to-day -day lives. 
and we certainly plod along if there's nothing behind it. Our approach to Paul's words here are to act as if they do not exist. And Paul says that we are wrong. Our strategy, just like that of the Corinthians, was under the guise of our freedom in Christ to collectively put our heads in the sand and to ignore this spiritual reality and just get on with life, pretending that there are no consequences to our false worship. What Paul exposes here in our text, Christ said, we have to grapple with this. Is there really an evil entity present when we secretly swipe through our Tinder and Grinder profiles? When we sacrifice our time, time with our family, with our children, to get that promotion at work, is there really some malevolent force behind that, receiving our praise? What are we serving in our pursuit of health? To whom and what are we sacrificing when we attempt to roll our kids into the best schools? What does our new Tesla symbolize? What does our eating habits say about what we worship? Does, does our sacrifice and our discipline in what we consume and what we abstain from, is this somehow connected to a hidden spiritual reality? Is our omnipresent thirst for and quest for financial independence, is that just good stewardship or is there something else there? Now, this line of thinking opens up the proverbial Pandora's box, pun intended, Do we just kind of keep calm and demon on? Christ City, hear me clearly. Paul is definitely not saying that there's a demon behind every bush and every tree. But what he is saying, oh, watch out, be careful. Be careful what you engage in. Eyes wide open. There is no such thing as casual worship. We, just like the Corinthians, underestimate the cultural lure and power to engage in our society. We are oblivious to malevolent forces. We do not understand that they receive power when we worship them. We must not miss the ever-present, almost omnipresent, suffocating pull, whether it's overt or covert. We undervalue and we do not realize that the burden and the struggle to maintain fidelity to Jesus and live and work as a Christian in this city is a battle over worship. Paul says to us this morning here, there's no such thing as casual worship. What we give time to, what we by default worship, it does not lack influence, it does not lack significance, and it does not lack power. We cannot partake of the table of Christ and the table of demons. To do so, is quite frankly spiritual self-harm. If we are honest with ourselves this morning, we all have to admit this and maybe even confess that we have a propensity to self-harm in our worship. And we don't think of it that way. We forget that we are at war, but we also forget that we have already won. Paul does not leave us hanging here. This is why he directs us and reminds us the table of communion. This is where we celebrate Jesus. This is the place that we are freed from our spiritual infidelity, our self-harm. Paul reminds us that Jesus is the one who takes all the shame, all the guilt. He takes all the jealousy from God that our actions incur, and he gives us freedom. Christ City, we forget that we are war, and we also forget that we've already won. 
the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, the reason why these things are central to our point and our faith and our worship right here, the reason why they're central is because through Jesus, through his death on the cross, we actually have freedom from the things that slave us, enslave us. Why? Why is Jesus? He's worthy. He is so worthy to receive our praise. Paul, writing to a different church in Colossae, different Roman city, I want you to, I know the words are going to be up here, but I want you to kind of close your eyes and imagine with me describing how worthy Jesus is of our praise, how much so that he is one, and how insignificant demons are if we understand who Jesus is. Hear these words. Colossians 1, starting at verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. These are demons. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. In all him, all things are hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven, or whether on earth, rather, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Isn't that glorious news? Jesus is worthy of our praise. This is why Paul says there's no such thing as casual worship. Any other worship is self-harm and enslaving. Now, if you walked in here this morning, as Paul says, alienated, hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, I plead here, with you this morning to walk out free. Walk out free. Surrender to Jesus, the one who reconciles you to God through his body, his blood. Confess your need for him. Confess your propensity to self-harm to him. He died to make you holy. He died to make you blameless and above reproach, as the text says. It is in communion that we confess our propensity to self-harm in our worship. It is in Jesus, the object of our praise, that we are made free. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we acknowledge that there are so many things in our lives that bifurcate our worship of you, that distract us, that numb us to the need of the reality that you have, that we can be free in you, and we willingly choose chains by worshiping these things. So Lord, we ask that you'd forgive us we'd ask that you would free us by your blood. As we take communion, Lord, I ask that we would celebrate and praise you. Why? Because you are worthy of our praise. So in this we pray. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. 
Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.